Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 111, JEDP, The Mount Ebal Defixio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 5. Last week, I was quite polemical against the academic critics of the Mount Ebal Defixio discovery. I regret not a word, but my lifelong journey across the intellectual spectrum, across ideological boundaries, as well as my interdisciplinary approach to investigations of all sorts, allows me to understand, if not to explain away, the errors into which they've fallen. When one chooses to deny, rather than face one's faith postulates, those axioms upon which we build our view of the world, you end up believing blindly, that is, with a false certainty, that you have no presuppositions, no faith stances. Academia, that is, by training people in a particular place and time, makes them products of the particular biases, blindnesses, and limitations to which that context is itself subject. On the flip side, it also makes them particularly astute within those boundaries and limitations. If, as C.S. Lewis says in Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, academia produces scholars, quote, obviously influenced by, and perhaps insufficiently critical of, the spirit of the age they grew up in, end quote. It is also the case that the broader tradition of scholarship, the disciplinary boundaries themselves, when brought to bear on the parochial errors of an age, finds lasting value in the scholarly work done in that age, even as a new age dawns. As such, I have no doubt that Professors Rolston and Cargill will be found to have made significant contributions to their respective disciplines. They remain, however, men of their times, as no doubt am I, though our contexts and faith positions differ. My critiques are offered in that spirit. It is now high time in this series to tackle C.S. Lewis's thoughts in his essay mentioned above concerning modern theology and biblical criticism. We began this series with a brief introduction to the higher criticism, and in particular, the JEDP theory, which our friend the Mad Scot credited with driving him from his early faith in Christ. The so-called documentary hypothesis is certainly one of the theoretical constructions Lewis had in mind when he penned this essay, or rather, gave this speech in 1959. I say so-called because I don't think that the theoretical possibility of source material, that is, documents, whether verbal tradition or written texts, being used by the authors of the Old Testament, or the New for that matter, is excluded by any more traditional view of the authorship of the Pentateuch. There is nothing particularly novel or challenging to the notion that the production of the Bible and its authors used source materials or documents. As I was preparing this series, I came across a website called Bible Brisket, a satirical treatment of faith and the Bible. I am most decidedly not recommending this website to you as a resource, but I did find a very compelling defense posted for the JEDP theory, and one to which I think Lewis's essay responds precisely in the manner which that defense says no one has responded. It is worth our while for me to read this section from that website. 
The URL will be included in the notes to this episode should you wish to see it yourself. One of the great values of this presentation is that it asks you to review the evidence for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Would that this spirit were more widespread in academia today. The post is a quotation, as the site notes, from the book by Richard Elliott Friedman, The Bible with Sources Revealed. Above all, the strongest evidence establishing the documentary hypothesis is that several different lines of evidence converge. There are more than 30 cases of doublets, stories or laws that are repeated in the Torah, sometimes identically, more often with some differences of detail. The existence of so many overlapping texts is noteworthy itself, but their mere existence is not the strongest argument. One could respond, after all, that this is just a matter of style or narrative strategy. Similarly, there are hundreds of apparent contradictions in the text, but one could respond that we can take them one by one and find some explanation for each contradiction. And, similarly, there is the matter of the texts that consistently call the deity God, while other texts consistently call God by the name Yahweh, to which one could respond that this is simply like calling someone sometimes by his name and sometimes by his title. The powerful argument is not any one of these matters. It is that all these matters converge. When we separate the doublets, this also results in the resolution of nearly all the contradictions. And when we separate the doublets, the name of God divides consistently in all but three out of more than 2,000 occurrences. And when we separate the doublets, the terminology of each source remains consistent within that source. I listed 24 examples of such terms which are consistent through nearly 400 occurrences above in the terminology section. And when we separate the sources, this produces continuous narratives that flow with only a rare break. And when we separate the sources, this fits with the linguistic evidence, where the Hebrew of each source fits consistently with what we know of the Hebrew in each period, and so on for each of the six categories that precede this section. The name of God and the doublets were the starting points of the investigation into the formation of the Bible, but they were not, and are not, major arguments or evidence in themselves. The most compelling argument for the hypothesis is that this hypothesis best accounts for the fact that all this evidence of so many kinds comes together so consistently. To this day, no one known to me who challenged the hypothesis has ever addressed this fact. Thus, I did not list the doublets as one of the primary arguments for the hypothesis above. The primary argument is rather that so many double stories could line up with so many other categories of evidence, composed of hundreds of points of data. With that larger argument in mind, we can now take account of the doublets and add them to the picture in this collection of evidence. I have seen it claimed that such doublets are a common phenomenon in ancient Near Eastern literature. That is false. No such phenomenon exists. Doublets are not common in Near Eastern prose because there is no Near Eastern prose, in the form of either history writing or long fiction, prior to these biblical texts. It is not even common in Near Eastern poetry. The poetic text that comes closest to the qualities of the biblical text that we are discussing here is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the Epic of Gilgamesh is a composite of several sources. 
It is a demonstration of composition by combining sources in the ancient Near East, not a refutation of it. I have also seen the claim that the scholar just chooses the evidence to fit his or her arrangement. For example, that the scholar assigns every verse that has the word congregation in it to P, and then says that the recurrence of this word in P is proof of the hypothesis. This argument should be seen to be false in the light of all the evidence presented here. No scholar is clever enough to make all of these terms line up within the sources, and to make it all come out consistent with the other signs of the sources. In the text of the Torah that appears in the next section of this book, one can observe each of the doublets with the sources identified. One can then observe all the characteristic terms, the resolution of the contradictions, the separation of the words that are used to identify the deity, the continuity of each story within the doublet, and all the other categories of evidence. The combined weight of the evidence that one will observe there, together with the evidence that is collected here in this section, should make it clear why this explanation of the biblical origins has been so compelling for more than a century, and whether one agrees with this explanation, questions it, or challenges it, one will have in front of him, or her, the evidence to address. It is amazing that at this point, when such a mass of evidence is available, some writers still discuss this at so low a level as, for example, arguing about whether different names of God constitutes proof or not, or whether doublets prove multiple authorship, or whether a beautiful literary structure, for example, a chiasm, is evidence for a single author. Or some just say that, quote, the hypothesis was disproved long ago, or nobody accepts it anymore. Here, rather, is the evidence for anyone to see, evaluate, acknowledge, or refute. End quote. Converging lines of evidence, truly, is one of the most powerful indications that you are on to something. As an academic and as a Christian, it is when independent lines of investigation and experience come together to send a single message that I begin to think that I might have stumbled on something important. We should remember, though, that this still leaves open the question of what the converging evidence is pointing to, and also, perhaps, why it is converging. I appreciate this account for precisely this reason. It helps me understand why this theory has persisted when the procedures it adopts have fallen from favor in most other disciplinary areas, being only seldom and much more cautiously applied today. The author declares, The combined weight of the evidence that one will observe should make it clear why this explanation of the biblical origins has been so compelling for more than a century. What remains to us in this series, then, is to explain to our listeners why I do not find it, or the higher criticism itself, compelling, to tie the various chords of this series together, and to meet the challenge issued by this author. Quote, the name of God and the doublets were the starting points of the investigation into the formation of the Bible, but they were not, and are not, major arguments or evidence in themselves. The most compelling argument for the hypothesis is that this hypothesis best accounts for the fact that all this evidence of many kinds come together so consistently. To this day, no one known to me who challenged the hypothesis has ever addressed this fact. Keeping in mind that my own ignorance of these, quote, assured results of modern scholarship, 
a phrase whose provenance I have been unable to satisfactorily trace. I will be addressing this challenge at a theoretical, and not an evidentiary level, and will thus leave a great deal of the nuts and bolts for which the author is asking undone. Given, though, that these assured results have been being articulated, extended, and developed for two centuries, and by some truly gifted thinkers, I will not blush to offer a new beginning point for inquiry. I say new because, as a newcomer to the discussion, I have no idea whether my own thoughts have before been propounded or explored. I am, after all, merely a sheep, bleating to the shepherds, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase. Nevertheless, by the end of our rambling together over this road, I will have suggested both a way around the higher criticism and a way forward. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.